Welcome to How to Build a Village. I'm Jill Martin-Wren, and I'm so thrilled to welcome Angela Tucker, an Emmy-nominated producer, writer, and director. Her directorial work, among many others, includes the teen comedy Paper Chase, the documentary web series Black Folk Don't, and the dance movie All Styles. You need to get serious, son. Ain't no time for fun and games in college. In 2006, she co-founded Tucker Girl LLC, a production company passionate about telling compelling and irreverent stories about underrepresented communities. She was a Sundance Institute Women Filmmakers Initiative Fellow and received her MFA in film from Columbia University. And we went to school together and we're in drama club together, which is how we know each other. But I have avidly followed your career, Angela, over the years. Well, welcome from New Orleans to the podcast. It's so great to hear and see you. Yes. Uh, how are you? Yes, great to see you. It's great. It's after a very, very long time. Yes, it has been a really long time. Well, there's so many things I have to ask you. First of all, uh, why don't you tell me, my listeners, what you're working on now? I am working on a series. It's a three short films for REI, which is a REI is a outdoors brand and the films are each feature a black woman in the outdoors at a moment of crisis but that sounds more dramatic than it is they're they're pretty light and uh we're still figuring out the title but they you know they had a request for proposals for working with the filmmaker to make diverse pieces about the outdoors and they're really looking to shift the way the outdoors is focused in in kind of their branding. So uh, these are just fun, short fiction films. One takes place in the 1960s and it's about a mother and daughter. It's all—it's really kind of the talk, which is the talk between like a, a lot of times you see a black father and son having sort of the talk about, you know, how to engage with the police. But I also wanted to show an example of a black mother and daughter sort of having conversations about kind of race relations as well, because that talk happens. So they have that talk mm. on a fishing trip. And then in the 1990s, it's a fun one about a couple who's who's on the rocks and they decide to take this trail maintenance class and they have this kind of wacky um, teacher and on during this class they reconnect. And then 2020, which is about an older woman who hasn't really left her house during the pandemic and makes a connection with a bird and like decides to follow it. So each of it kind of has an outdoor slant, but I kind of was calling it, we've always been here, but I might change it. To show like, you know, people of color have been in the outdoors forever, just as long as anyone. So yeah, so that's the most recent thing. And I have some other things that are kind of in, in development, but coming soon. What One of the most wonderful aspects of your work is your ability to tackle serious topics with levity. You, you know, like you're saying, like the talk is a serious topic, but the fact that you can do how do you manage to do that to address these issues and make them positive or, or even op optimistic feeling of hope, even as you're tackling these serious issues? Yeah, I mean... I think I just decided, I mean, uh, a while back, 
I I have a sense of comedy and I ha- I know like where jokes are. So um and that not everybody has that. So one I'm always trying to stick a joke in if I can. <laughs> but I've just found that the power of comedy and just kind of keeping things light actually when you're talking about a very serious topic, it kind of disarms the viewer mm-hmm. and they're almost kind of more open to hearing what you're talking about. And I, I think it comes from having a background in social issue documentaries. You know, I produced them for a long time before I transitioned into directing them. And what I kept noticing was they were all just so heavy, which is great and important, but whenever you could have a moment of levity in a film, it really, um, the audience was so engaged and just like engaged with the subject matter in a totally different way. So I carried that with me into all of the pieces that I make. So even if I'm telling kind of a very serious story, I try, like in 1960, you know, the mother and daughter are having this very serious talk. And actually, fun fact, Jill, Mm -hmm. I wrote all of the REI pieces with Aisha Chari, who also went to high school with Jill and I. So uh, to keep, you know, taping alive. Uh, So 1960, yeah, they're having this serious talk, but there's this kind of moment where the mother's giving the daughter this lure while she's fishing and it's like an antique, you know, and then the daughter drops it and has to like hop into the water to get it. And and it's not like a serious, it's actually like a, we filmed it not as a serious moment, but as sort of a frantic, like, where is it? Ah!" (laughs) And, you know, and you can take that moment and have it be very serious where you're like, oh no, what happens to the daughter? Do you think she's going to drown? But it just was nice to have this moment of like zaniness in the middle of this mother trying to have this really serious conversation (laughs) with her daughter. So uh, the hope is that once she finally gets to the conversation, you're you're like, you're ready for it too. You're like, oh, she's worked so hard. Let her have this conversation with you. And you actually don't hear the conversation. I thought it was interesting to kind of keep the evergreenness of the story. And I, you know, Aisha was the main writer on this, but she mm-hmm. was really like wanting to show the importance of the mom, how hard mothers work to raise Black children, you know, and mm-hmm. and kind of the things they have to think through in doing that. I have a social issue lens though, and I put it even off styles like the dance movie that I yes, did. Which I love. Um, that like a fun dance movie, but I did, you know, I, I really, I co-wrote that with my friend Lauren. And mm-hmm. for me, it was really important to have a lot of those movies don't have young black kids falling in love with each other. So now these movies are diverse, but it's like, there's always like one black lead and one white lead uh, to show like, oh, we, we want like white people to feel like they can see themselves. Whereas that, you know, I don't think that that's necessarily always necessary in films. Like it would be really great. You don't really get to see young black kids falling in love with each other very often. So that was like a whole process to really push for that to be the case and not have his love interest be white. And I'm, you know, I'm all into, you know, my boyfriend's white, but um, I just felt like young kids don't get to see black kids be together very often. So even in like the lightest movie ever, I still try to think about representation and how I can kind of push around representation so that different communities can, you know, see themselves. That film is amazing all styles I mean the dance moves the story and it's amazing that you had so many roles yourself in creating that I mean how how hard was that to get made 
So that is a really interesting one because that was a little bit of a work for hire in that I was trying to work with that producer on another script that I had written. She loved dance and had seen fiction on So You Think You Can Dance and was like, oh my God, he needs a whole project, right? Like he needs a movie. Mm -hmm. And so she reached out to myself and my writing partner, Lauren Domino, to take like the other movie we had written, like she liked sort of the vibe of that and come up with a story with fiction. So we had all of these like random sponsors and stuff. So we had to incorporate all these different things. So it's like, he had to be a dancer, but also we had access to LSU, which is really unusual. Like LSU doesn't give you, Louisiana State University yeah, yeah. doesn't give very many people access to film there. So we just came up with this idea of, wouldn't it be interesting to have a character who, is interested in academics and dances and doesn't feel like he needs to give one of them up. So it's like, you can be both of these things at the same time. You can be a dancer and you can be interested in science. And that was sort of the through line that we came up with for the character who he's constantly kind of feeling pulled in different directions. Mm -hmm. And ultimately he gets to be both of those things. So it's not even really about, like the competition is a device of the film, sure. Like you gotta have a dance competition. You gotta have a bad guy. You gotta wanna win, all of that. Those are all the things in dance movies, they're all there. But that was kind of the theme that we were pushing through that you can you know, be these two things at the same time. And that father-son relationship too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 that, that the dad was really, he was really great. And also what's interesting about fiction that we incorporated just a teeny bit is that, Fiction has a really close relationship with his dad. His dad was on set when we were filming. Mm -hmm. And his dad owns a dojo, like in the film. And so Mm -hmm. Fiction actually didn't learn how to dance through any kind of like dance class and quotes. He learned, he started out doing Taekwondo. Growing up in the dojo. And Mm -hmm. then he kind of started to just like come up with these new moves. So that's so he can do so many flips and things like that because he's he started out with like that background and then just started dancing and malls and stuff. So it's there his story is weaved in the beginning of it. And so that's I you know that's I guess that's part of how I work from also coming from a documentary background when we were coming up with the story we had a few long conversations with fiction to make sure that we were incorporating elements of his story into the movie. And and talk to me about your, your relationship. How did you, how did you first meet him? Well, through the producer. So oh, okay. producer, yeah. So Amy had seen fiction and so you think you can dance and then reached out to his team to get him to make a movie. No script, literally like picked this window in December. We're going to make a movie. Wow. So she had him for that time. And then, you know, it just became, I mean, it was like less than a year of me, you know, Amy reaching out to me, us writing the script, us talking to fiction. And then, you know, we get to December and we are in Baton Rouge. We'd flown in all these people from LA, all these dancers to get this movie made. Um, And then, you know, ultimately Amy was able to sell it. It was on Showtime. And um, I think you can see it on Amazon as well. Yeah, that's that's where I watched it. So if you could talk a bit about the role Louisiana has played in your work, because mm. you, you, you've got the, the LSU connection, you've got your wonderful film about the mayoral runoff mm-hmm. in 2017, you've 
obviously it's a, it plays a big role in your career. What what made you decide to move from New York, where we're both from, to Nor um to Louisiana and specifically uh, New Orleans? Well, I mean, it's funny. So just a teeny background. I had been working at a documentary production company called Big Mouth Productions, mm-hmm. great company. They have a film called Dick Johnson is Dead that's on Netflix now and doing great work, wonderful people. I worked for them for a long time. I started as an intern and I stayed eight years and left as director of production. And then, you know, did my own thing and was freelance producing, uh, directed some stuff. So I was getting, you know, I, I had a good career in New York, but there was like a moment where I just, I was living in like a tiny studio and I said, what would it be like if I looked for a one bedroom? right? Um, Just a one bedroom. (laughs) And uh, the price jump was so significant, right? So what I did was I said, okay, this is how much a one bedroom is going to cost. What will I have to do in like the neighborhood I'd want to live in? What would I have to do to have that amount of money every month? And when I did that, I realized it was kind of me doing a lot of freelancing, particularly in reality, because that's what I was doing at the time. It was a slightly different time in that now you can work in documentary and kind of more, they're more high-end documentary projects. But really, when I was thinking about this, it was all reality television. And I had dipped my toe in it and wasn't really happy doing it, but was Mm. sort of like, I would have, this would have to become my career in order for me to live in a nicer place in New York. And I wasn't really into that. And I was also starting to think about, you know, if I ever wanted to have a child um, through adoption was what I was thinking about, then I I, I don't know how I would afford to do that in New York. So I have a lot of good friends who live in New Orleans and I had been visiting a lot. And one friend told me that I visited six times in two years. So that was kind of the wake up call of, hmm, but I wasn't sure, you know, that living in New Orleans wasn't going to like ruin my career. So I, I spent a month just being there. I sublet at my place one December and just said, okay, I'm going to be in New Orleans, not for an event or a wedding or something. I'm just going to like be here to see what it's like. Mm-hmm. And it was great, but I wasn't even sure that I was going to move. But then when I came back to New York, I missed New Orleans. You know, there's that mm-hmm. thing um, about, you know what it means to miss New Orleans. There's a, it's a song, but it's true because when I was in New York, I was just like, I don't want to be here anymore. I really miss New Orleans. You know, Mm. at the time I had one freelance gig that was kind of what that was, could hold me in New Orleans for a while. Couldn't have held me in New York, but could hold me in New Orleans for a while. So I just reached out to them and said, Hey, What if I was living in another place, but I flew myself out for the shoot and I, you know, and they were like, sure. So that was like enough for me. I'd had some savings and I, you know, my, my close friend here found me a place to live. I I saw photos of it. I didn't even go to visit it. I like (laughs) sent a check with my deposit and (laughs) packed up my stuff and moved. And that was about seven years ago now. Oh, wow. And, yeah. and how have you found it? Do you miss New York or do you, do you feel like a, a true New Orleanser now, if that's the term? I mean, 
I mean, it's been, it was interesting. Before this year, I would go to New York all the time um, because it's actually it's a short flight. It's not an expensive flight. A lot of clients will just pay for it because it was like, you know, I could always stay with friends so they didn't have to put me up. So I didn't miss New York that much because I would go every couple of months, you know. This past, you know, 2020 and 2021, mm-hmm. I haven't been in New York in a year and a half. Mm-hmm this point and that's that's a long time um i during this time i i have really missed it i don't miss it like i want to live there again i'm i miss it that i miss the people and i like i sort of like the infusion um of energy that new york gives i mean i love new orleans but is every what, what people love about it it's like super relaxed and everybody moves really slowly. And um, sometimes you just want to be around that, you know, I'm a born and raised New Yorker. I want to be around like that frenetic energy. Um, yeah, and yeah. when I'm like that, people here are like, oh, calm down. You know? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, but why won't this get done? You know? <laughs> um, so I miss, you know, I miss that about New York. I'm, I'm really excited to just, you know, I'm vaccinated now and I'm out of get over to New York like soon. Um, But you would ask me a question about my work and I would say like, I think moving to Louisiana changed my work completely. Uh, It was was at a good moment and then I felt like I, you know, I wasn't learning the craft or anything for the first time, but I think the thing about New Orleans is that everybody's an artist and there's no Mm -hmm. real need to like label yourself in that way. people do all kinds of things just for sort of the love people paint, they make music, they, you know, just in addition to all the other things that they do. And I think I became more, um, I understood better about the role that like place plays in, in work hmm. um, and how that can make it a lot more kind of specific. Um, I also think that it helped see me see an entirely different way of life, which just makes, you a better creative person because you've been exposed to different things. Um, And I think, you know, when I was in New York, so much of film there is about, like you have all of these meetings and when you take all these meetings, you feel like you're moving forward in your career, but you're just like having a bunch of meetings, you know? (laughs) Whereas here, it's like, you just, you you know, I I made like this short film that I made, All Skin Folk Ain't Kin Folk, Nobody was like waiting for that film. Nobody, I, it wasn't like a commission, anything. I literally just, there was a mayoral race that was happening in New Orleans between two black women. I had never voted between two black women for a race at that level. And you know, in New York that hasn't happened. So I was really interested in it and was interested in why my friends and different people that I knew were kind of like, eh. Sure, whatever, right? So I just explored that as a just a creative person and you know started out doing audio interviews with people and just kind of built it from there and you know ultimately got money from public television but wasn't you know just made it out of interest. And people do the, that all the time and I wasn't really doing that in New York. Like it was definitely like I feel like I need to make this thing for it to be on this really large platform, you know? And now I really do make things out of just the love of making them. Is it a challenging piece that the fundraising bit? I mean, is that something? Yeah. That- yeah. I mean, that is always the challenging piece. But I think part of the move was for me to need less money to live so that the fundraising mm-hmm. piece is less difficult just by virtue of 
I don't need as much money because the challenging bit is like paying myself. And a lot of times, a lot of filmmakers, especially in documentary, don't necessarily get to pay themselves, you know? Mm. The challenging, it's hard. Also, I mean, I will just say that during the time that I've moved, there's been a real shift in particularly documentary filmmaking around being more interested in people um, from the South and sort of um, this kind of regional, like um, we're not just gonna fly in a New York person or an LA person to make a piece about the South. We're gonna try to find more people that actually live here. Mm-hmm. So I have benefited um, in having the New York background, but living here now. So I, I get a lot of work, just like cold emails of like people from different places who looked up my website and saw that I had this background and they, you know, like I, you know, this is how I get a lot of the corporate work that I get is just like people wanting somebody here who has enough experience to do the things that they need to do. So that's been nice in terms of, I haven't had to, the fun reason hasn't been as hard, but I'm also a professor, I should say. I've been a professor for the past two years and that really helped, especially during the pandemic when there really wasn't, you know, I really wasn't working that much during the pandemic in terms of making films. So that also, yeah. And it, it was, I wanted to do more teaching in New York, but it was you know, the competition was a lot of filmmakers who are also professors in New York. So here it was, the, there's competition, but it's not like the same amount of people just by virtue of, you know, I think New Orleans has like 400,000 people total. Mm. So it's a much, much smaller um, pool of people. And how do you enjoy the teaching? I like it. It's, I mean, I really like the stability um, in terms of health insurance, et cetera. Um, that's great. Because as a creative, you know, you know, I haven't had someone else. I've not had de- direct deposit or health insurance in I don't know how long. So that's been really nice to not be managing all of that myself. And I like, I think the thing about teaching when you're a creative person is, it reminds you why you love doing the things that you do mm. because you're seeing people experience it for the first time. And, you know, kind of that moment of, oh, I get how to do that is very satisfying, you know? And also when you have like these creative ideas, you know, as a, I always have these like little, somebody should make a movie about this or that. It is helpful to have a bunch of students in class just see what they respond to. So yeah, it's been great. That must be amazing that you're a working filmmaker. You're not reflecting back on a career that ended 10 years ago. You're you're actually yeah. in there now. So you actually can help launch students' careers because you 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 know what it looks like right now. Yeah. I mean the thing that's tricky though is like, so I was on this thing and I asked my colleagues about it where you're always like, should you show your own work? Right. Cause you feel it's very vulnerable showing your work. Um, but I do at the end of the semester, I will show one thing I made. So it's like, if you if you are not responding to it, you don't have to, um, I don't have to hear it or we don't have to interact, but yeah, I think like I can speak to the career, like what a career trajectory is like being sort of a working filmmaker. And film is just really a weird beast in that it's constantly changing and the path is constantly changing in terms of the the path to success. So I think it is important or helpful to have people who are 
currently making things kind of mixed in with people who are kind of more career academics. I think that's the perfect mix. And how have you found in your, because if you've been in filmmaking for many years now, how have you found that audiences and the industry has changed in terms of the social justice piece? Do you think that they're more receptive about the stories about underrepresented communities? Are you finding that there's more of a demand and more of an audience for those stories now? Yeah, I mean, so I think there's more of a demand and it's, I think there's two reasons. One is just, I think that uh, there's a whole legacy of sort of creatives of color who have been like pushing and pushing and pushing to get Mm -hmm. more representation. And I think finally that work is starting to come to fruition where people are sort of seeing that. I do think sort of the the racial reckoning that happened around George Floyd's murder um, uh, last year was, it was a big moment in terms of, I think it got a lot of people um, who weren't necessarily as engaged with social issues or particularly what was happening within the black community to be more engaged and involved. And uh, there's definitely a shift just in the meetings that I have around um, acknowledging that these stories need to be told and that they need to be told by people within the communities that they affect, right? So social issue documentaries have always kind of been like that, but I don't necessarily think they were made by the most diverse community. So now there's definitely a push for more directors of color there. And in the fiction world, I think it's a similar push too. And also just there's just the dollars and cents piece of it which is people are seeing that, you know, people want to see these stories. I mean, I think Black Panther was probably Mm. a big moment of reckoning because that movie made so much money. Mm. And the argument that Black creatives have been hearing since the dawn of time is that Black films don't travel well, meaning like we can't sell them outside of the United States. And um, Black Panther showed that, that is completely like there, there are other films that you can dig in the archives and say, what about this? What about but Black Panther? Everybody knows mm. that everybody saw Black Panther <laughs> all over the world, you know? Um, so that film, I think, was a really huge moment and made a lot of change. Um, I mean, not just saw, but like, it's like, I live in London. I have kids here. I mean, they were all doing Wakanda forever in, in the playground to their teach. I mean, from, I mean, it, it just, it, it's like a movement, not just, oh, we saw it, but like, it just, it did. It just galvanized thought, I feel like. It, do you know what I mean? It was more than just like, oh yeah, that movie was good. Let's talk about something else now. It was just a, you see it again and again and you you quote it and you aspire to be like the characters, you know, it was, uh, so yeah, that was a great Yeah, thing. no, I mean, it was, I, I, I totally agree. And I also think, there's so many levels that that was huge for black people in the sense of it was also a, an all black community that was well functioning and you know just like a positive representation of that community which i think is is was really crucial um, as well. So that was, I think a lot of people see that as in a dollars and cents way, a moment that studios really could not continue with the argument that um, Black films don't travel well, people aren't interested in these Black stories because, you know, um, everybody was interested in Black Panther. And what other 
films, books do you do you like? Do you tell your students to read and watch? Are there others that you think are positive with representation and also compelling narratives? Wow. Well, um, to put you I mean, on the I, spot. Yeah, I know. I would just say, I mean, what I try to do in my classes is when I'm teaching something, the, the way that you teach something doesn't change. So if I'm trying to, um, I'm teaching screenwriting and I'm trying to teach you a, mo you know, a moment where show don't tell. Uh, uh, so I, you'll then, you would show a clip from something as an example, right? Um, and when I went to film school, even in that way where you're trying to show an example of something, they would always show things made by white guys, always, right? Mm -hmm. And in those moments, you could show whatever. And in show using an example, you're highlighting a film saying, this is something that you should see. And does this thing that you've learned in textbooks well? So I, though I don't teach any classes that are about like, you know, black culture or about like, you know, uh, I do use examples from all over the world. So like there's a film called Killer of Sheep that I really love by Charles mm -hmm. Burnett that came out, um, I think it's the eighties, I think. And uh, Charles Burnett was, you know, was at UCLA and was part of this community of black filmmakers who were making these really kind of provocative experimental films, Julie Dash who did um, Daughters of the Dust was part of that class. So when I showed Killer Sheep, many of my students have never seen this film before, but I use it as, you know, an example of sort of a specificity of place because it takes place in a community in, a, in LA, right? Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of like issues that they're dealing with in that movie, but if I use it as an example of something that's fairly innocuous, right? Um, you're learning about this film and this filmmaker um, and I'm not, I'm not making it like it's homework in quotes for you. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what I try to do just in my teaching, for example, is include as many diverse filmmakers as I can uh, in what I'm doing. And that way, when those students leave the class, they don't leave the class thinking of a handful of people to quote that are all the same, like, French white guys or American white guys, <laughs> which are pretty much all they show you in film school. Um, so that's that's how I tackle it. <laughs> and 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 what about books? What are books that you enjoy reading? You know that maybe help inspire or, or inform your filmmaking. Oh my god! So I just read this book called, and I feel like. You know, I'm sounding like Brene Brown here. Uh, so, okay. so I just read this book called The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. And um, it is a short, very short book. Uh, and essentially, it it's about body positivity. But really, on a deeper level, it's about taking this notion of body positivity beyond just like body love and really like self-love, right? Mm -hmm. In whatever form that you are at in the present day now, right? So that is something that I just read um, that just really, uh, though it, it's pretty plain and simple, there's something about the way she talks about 
self-love that feels pretty radical. Also on the cover, you know, she's plus size black woman and she's, she's naked with like flowers on her, you know, over her boobs <laughs> and seeing a woman like that on the cover of this book, just, you know, feel, I mean, I want to get at like that, that image framed. It's just like an incredible image. Uh, so that's something that I've read recently that, you know, really inspired me. And for my classes, I would say there's this woman, Sonia Childress, who mm. has been writing a series of articles about a sort of decolonizing the documentary like industry and basically looking at who is telling stories and why and uh, and asking those crucial questions before sort of deciding how to move forward with making work and um so that those articles are something that i have my students read as well and i think uh you can just look her name up and a bunch of the articles pop up yeah yeah i, I will uh i will check that out have, have you, i mean have you found it challenging as an african-american woman navigating the film industry that like you said is dominated by a lot of american and french some french white men i mean yeah i, I think the hardest part about it is um i think that someone of my sort of experience and skill level i often think if i were a white man where would i be mm-hmm. and i might be in a different further along place, you know? Every conversation that I have with someone in the film industry, very often there's some kind of microaggression that occurs because it's like Mm. someone white trying to understand the material that I'm, whatever I'm pitching or whatever I'm talking about. They're gonna say one thing that you're just gonna have to be like, I'm not gonna think about that thing you just said because they're trying to like access, find their own like access point for the information. And that, you know, that's just hard. It just is. Um, And you always have to kind of justify why you wanna tell the story, why people want to tell the story why it's important that kind of thing so that that does get tiresome and I have so many friends now who yes we're having this moment where there's more interest in stories by people of color but you also walk around wondering is that interest going to go away so you then feel like you have to work as hard as you can in this moment, take every meeting in the world, do everything because this moment may go away and you at least want to feel like you have, mm-hmm. you've, you've made some progress in your career in case like you, things kind of go back to how they were um, where there was like less people wanting to take meetings with you. So um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard business for sure. What would you say if you can, if you can pick, like what's been your most rewarding experience thus far or your your favorite moment as a filmmaker so far? Well, um, I'm going to cheat. I think that uh, the most recent thing I did, the shorts I did for REI uh, were really satisfying because I wrote them with my best friend. Uh, they really just gave us funding and said, make what you want to make with, you know, under the guise of, you know, incorporating the outdoors into it. Nice. And that was, it was just a lot of fun. And, you know, I could like hire who I wanted to hire and, you know, cast who I want to cast. Cause a lot of times when you're, particularly when you're working with brands, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of approvals all the way around where it's like, we want to, you know, just so they're making sure that you're progressing, but also making sure that things are on brand with this. So we, we just had fun and just told these like three fun stories and set them outside and, you know, 
I mean, the great thing about Louisiana is you turn on a camera and it looks gorgeous. So, mm. you know, it's just, uh, they all look really beautiful. So that's, that's, it's been really rewarding because it, it also feels like a, like I'm in a different place in my career than I was, where I'm not kind of like mm. needing as much, um, needing to be as accountable to people as much as I had to when I was a younger filmmaker. Thank you so much. You are inspiring. I love your work. And it's so great to see that your drama club work from back in the day is, 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 is serving serving you well working in the, the it real is, world. It is. It, is. You know, it did all start in drama club. It's true. That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I can't wait to see your next work. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. They'll be out June 1st. So I'll send them to you too. Perfect. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of How to Build a Village. For more on Angela Tucker's work, you can go to tuckergirl.com. That's T-U-C-K-E-R-G-U-R-L.com.